I want to introduce you to one of my favorite American heroes, Jedediah Smith. Jed Smith was one of the very first trappers that went out with uh, Clay Ashley's call to go open up the American West. Among many accomplishments, Smith opened the uh, South Pass through the Rocky Mountains, a very significant achievement. He also blazed the first ever land route to California, which opened up the largest voluntary mass migration of the entire 19th century. He was a true pioneer. He lived in a very rough world. Thankfully, Jed was a very tough man. For example, 1823, Jed leads a group of trappers through previously completely unexplored territory through what we call Nebraska and South Dakota. It was a harrowing trip. I just want to read you one little part of it. When they reached the Black Hills, this happened. I'm going to read from John Myers Myers' wonderful book, The Deaths of the Bravos, one of my all-time favorite books ever. Listen to what Myers says about Jed. Jed had an encounter similar to the one which had shattered Hugh Glass a few weeks earlier, which they tried to capture in the movie The Revenant last year. Um, the first of a file leading horses along a brush-choked ravine, Smith all but bumped into a grizzly bear, which promptly reared and seized his head in its capacious jaws. Jed's companions killed the beast without being able to do so in time to spare his face from a mutilation which took in one removed ear. Acting on instructions from the patient, Jim Kleiman sewed him up and even tacked the severed ear back on. Amazingly, it remained a healthy part of Smith's anatomy. Awesome! <laughs> Most historians agree that Jed Smith was the greatest mountain man of them all. But what kind of person was, was Jedediah Smith? Was, was, he, was he just a tough guy who lived through drought and, and was really hardy and endured bears and said, Sew me up, Nick. Just cut him up. No. Jed Smith was a whole lot more than that. Listen to this description. Another quote for you from uh, Meyer's book. Jedediah Smith was a remarkable man who kept himself clean-shaven, never chose to bed with any of the squaws that hopes of profit or the laws of hospitality made available in quantity in most of the Indian villages. He was furthermore a regular consultant of the Bible that he carried in his possible sack. That's what a backpack used to be called. Um, and even the bear, which almost tore his head off, didn't draw profanity from Jed, only prayers. OMG indeed. Wow. Jed Smith is a quintessential American hero and a believer in Jesus. I, for one, cannot wait to meet him in heaven. Uh, if you would like to introduce him to your kids or grandkids, I recommend this book by Esther Vogt. Uh, now, fast forward to our day. Okay, let's think about our times. We, we also live in pretty tough times, at, at least morally we do. Lots of bears and, and trolls are lying in wait, right, to decapitate us every day. How do we respond to that? Do we respond like Jed? Well, we're going to at least get the chance to become more like him because this morning we're studying a king whose character is very, very similar to Jed Smith's. We're going to learn from the good king Asa of Judah. Asa is an, is an ultimate example of a truly tough guy. And as delightful as John Myers Myers' writing is, his words are no match for God's. So open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings 15, you'll find it after 2 Samuel, amazingly, before 2 Kings. Go to 1 Kings 15. And let's read verses 9 through 12, okay? 1 Kings 15, 9 through 12. In the 20th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, quick review, um, the, the, the land of Israel has split into two parts. The northern kingdom is called Israel's. You may know what the southern kingdom's called? Judah, right. We're studying Judah's kings in this series. We're learning from them. So when, Rehoboam was, or when Jeroboam was over Israel, we're going to learn about something that happened in Judah. Okay. In the 20th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Asa became king of Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. 
Asa did what was right in the Lord's eyes, as his ancestor David had done. He banished the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all of the idols his father had made. Stop there. This is so bold. Do you know what's happened here? What you just read about was a man doing something unthinkable to nearly every human being throughout all human history. He is rejecting porn and paganism. As we say in your notes, you've got a bulletin when you came in. Open up your bulletin, look there in your notes, and you'll see on the left side, paganism and pornography are put away. Let me explain. Let's start with the paganism part. The word translated idols into English is literally big logs. Uh, the Hebrew gilulim is, is a term that literally means big logs. That was the term used for idols. This is Jewish humor at its finest, all right? Let me explain. The, the pagan people around the Hebrews worshipped a typical pantheistic panoply of gods bowing before their graven images. Many considered, by the way, did you know this about the ancient world? Many people considered uh, the worship of these graven images was an important part of environmentalism. Very significant part of how they thought you were supposed to take care of the earth. Yahweh makes it clear from the very word he uses to describe them that these intricately carved idols are nothing but big dead logs. Asa's great-grandfather, Solomon, he had, he had set up these idols that none of his descendants had bothered to take down. Sometimes they even wasted their time worshiping these big logs. And, and in fact, by the time Asa comes along, it's fashionable in his day, to bow before such pagan influences regularly. Aren't you glad we're not like that? <laughs> or are we? Tell me. Please tell me. Just give me a volunteer. Somebody tell me one of the big logs of our day. What's something, what's an idol that we worship today? Somebody in this section here. What do you got? What is it? Sports. So convicting. Did you have to say that today? <laughs> Beltray's going to hit his 3,000th hit today. But I am not worshiping him. Thank you. Good reminder. All right. This section. Yes. The environment. The environment. Uh, we're going to come back to that. That's very well said. What's something people worship? Yes, ma'am. Money. Oh, yeah, of course. My, oh, yes, yes. In fact, it undergirds a whole lot of other uh, idolatry along with pride. They, they, have, they make a very unholy couple. All right. Thank you very much. All right. The situation in our day, the point is, the situation in our day is incredibly similar to Asus, is it not? We also see people worship the creation, as you said, the environment instead of the creator. And you know what we do? We call holy these often very unrighteous prophets of environmental doom. That's paganism. There's another issue that is an exact parallel between our age and Asa's, and that is the other half of what happened here. That's pornography. Look at your text. Asa got rid of the male cult prostitutes. This is describing a leering and licentious kind of worship. Again, the word choice in the Hebrew is very, very telling. God uses this word. He uses kadeshim. This is incredibly sick. Kadeshim is a, is a syncretized word. It's an unholy amalgamation. It wasn't made up by the Hebrews. It was made up by some other peoples around them, but the Hebrews adopted it. It warps Kadesh. Kadesh is a wonderful word. Kadesh is a word for holy, something that is sanctified. It takes that word for holiness and then applies it to these men who had sex as part of an idol worship. In case you don't know, the basic worldview of this religion was that all life on earth was created because of the sexual union of a god and goddess. It's particularly grotesque. I'm not going to go into the details of it with kids here, but it's really, really gross. Um, this worship was perpetrated at, at the high places. They were literally high, but they were also places of, of idol worship, uh, sometimes illicit drug use, almost always uh, routine sexuality, especially where you see Asherah mentioned. The Asherah pole is describing for you a place of this kind of, of Kadeshim. Um, for, for the earth to remain fertile, 
these people thought that they had to commit wanton sexuality at the high places, at the Asherah poles. This kind of idol worship now, worship used loosely, involved a great deal of pornography. Okay? Here's what they did. Images of goddesses or of humans were, were salaciously drawn in such a way and created in such a way as to arouse the most interest, especially from males. And then those images were plastered all over town. I'm certain you realize how little has changed in that regard, right? Everything in your world is sexualized today. Unbiblical sexuality is worship for... Female anatomy is used to sell water. Water, for goodness sake. It's uncanny. I even know, true story, I know of a church youth ministry that uses unbiblical sexuality in an effort to recruit young men to the church. Now, the pornography in Asa's day was doubly offensive to godly Jews. Do you know why? God commanded the Hebrews to make no what? No graven image, yeah. They, they were not supposed to worship anything but Yahweh. And second part of this is their tradition said that prohibition included any human representations. And yet here they are, stuck in this country, full of pornography, posted everywhere in order to make money. Again, the similarities with our time are incredibly striking. Uh, my pulpit team partner, Cindy Sharp, wrote a great comment on this. Look what Cindy wrote me. She said, Wayne, I hate how prevalent the pornographic sexualization of things are. It preys on a male's lesser impulses and destroys a female's notion of what's appropriate. Sadly, few seem to notice or care, and no one wins but the advertisers. Close quote. Asa cared. Look what he did. He tore down all those idols. I want to show you a quote from one of the great preachers of the 20th century, uh, Herbert Lockyer. He said, Ace's stand took courage. Our idols of fortune, fashion, popularity, self-indulgence must be severely dealt with if we desire God's best. We can only be right with God and with one another when we are right about our little gods and man-made idols, close quote. If Asa can do it, so can you. Be bold. I have a friend. I want you to be as bold as my friend. Let me describe him to you. This guy is very, very wealthy. He manages hundreds of hotels across the United States. And yet, he voluntarily surrenders millions of dollars in income every year. Do you know why? Because he refuses to have his hotels have the pay-for-porn TV channels. Millions of dollars. He gives up because he is not going to be a part of this kind of pornographic pagan nonsense. Now, what about you? What is your own leering and licentious pornography? What, what paganisms are you wrongfully calling holy? Is, is, it, is it those TV channels you shouldn't be watching? Get rid of the satellite. It, it, stay in a different hotel. Is it porn sites on your phone? Put locking software on there and give your phone to your friend or your spouse every single day. That's what I do. I don't, I don't even add apps to my phone. I purposefully make myself incapable of knowing how. I'm not totally stupid. I could figure it out, but I don't want to. My sweetheart does it all. We laugh that she's my personal assistant, and she does it all. That way she can make sure that I am wise and healthy. Do you know what our church staff have? Some of them don't even know this. They're going to learn this. Every single keystroke they make, everything they do on their church computer is mirrored exactly. Every bit of it is copied, partly so that our, our service company that we use can fix any problems on their computer, but partly so Pastor Andy can check anything they're looking at any minute. We do that because we love each other and we love the Lord and we want to stand up like Asa to paganism and porn. Paul addressed this very powerfully, 1 Corinthians. I'd like you to read it with me, please. And since we're talking about standing up to it, stand up, boys and girls, come on, it's good for you. Stand up. You get to read the underlying text in 1 Corinthians 6. 
Uh, I'll read the part that's not underlined. We'll start in verse 18. Run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God where, everybody? In your body. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Whatever your pagan or pornographic tendency, be like Asa. Rip it down. Burn it out. Flee immorality. All God's people said? Where do we flee to? We flee to the Lord. Look at the quote from Cindy. It continues this way. In fact, I like this part so much I put it in their notes, Cindy. I, I thought this was great. In your notes it says this. We must turn to the one who made everything. He who created the world and everything in it. He who set it all in motion and continues to superintend all things so they develop according to his plan. He is the only one that can help. Anything less is, is just piling more weight on the heap we're trying to dig out from under. Close quote. Now. You want to be really impressed with Asa? Take a look at this. Continue reading. Read the next section, uh, starting in verse 13. He also removed his grandmother, Maacah, from being queen mother because she made an obscene image of Asherah, those poles I told you about. Asa chopped down her obscene image and burned it in the Kidron Valley. The high places were not taken away, but Asa's heart was completely devoted to the Lord his entire life. He brought his father's consecrated gifts and his own consecrated gifts into the Lord's temple, silver, gold, and utensils. As we headline on the right side of your notes, look there, Asa refuses to defer to default culture. God, God selects this event in Asa's life and records it right here so we can be shocked at how amazing it is that Asa really did put away pornography and paganism. Asa came from a very bad home, folks, very bad, and yet he did good. He didn't just do good. He broke a tradition, a fam family tradition. He broke a family tradition of doing bad. This is going to be a recurring theme in our study of Judah's kings. Sir Hugh Williamson sets the stage for us, I think, very nicely. He says, Asa was probably very young, and it's almost certain given the, the genealogies we have. Asa was probably very young when he succeeded to the throne, and it is implied, verse 16 that we read, that it was owing to his mother the religious state of Judah deteriorated. This most likely is to have been during the period of her greatest influence, namely when Asa was a minor. That's what he grew up in. By the way, uh, Meacah was actually Asa's grandmother. Um, in, in Hebrew, the words for mother and father are often used interchangeably with grandmother, grandfather, and sometimes even great-grandmother, great-grandfather. But Meacah was very influential. She's the queen mother. Now, it's hard those of you that grew up in, in, in Britain and other places, it's, it's easier for you. But for us Yanks, it's kind of hard to understand this power because we have no recognized royalty. One time I was in England during the Queen Mother's birthday celebration. Happened to be in London during the Queen Mother's birthday party. And I just want to testify, you cannot imagine the cultural power that woman had. Millions hung on her every word, her dress, her everything. The very next day, shops all over London. I, I like bakeries. I tend to go to them. Shops all over London. Every bakery had replica cakes made to look. They were still hot out of the oven, made to look exactly like the Queen Mother's birthday cake. And they were, they were selling like hot cakes. Anyway, uh, it was, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. It was just right there. Asa stands up to that kind of cultural icon, and he says, I am not going to let this cycle of sin continue. 
As for me and those who are following me, we are breaking this kind of sin. We, we are going to serve only the Lord. Wow. To put this in our context, um, let's consider the plight of another friend of mine, small business owner that I know. She really, really needed a cash flow loan, so she met with bankers uh, about a loan that would be backed by the Small Business Administration back when they used to do those kind of loans. During the meeting, she met with this banker, and he had a pin on that read, Abortion, Every Woman's Right, okay? And the banker looked at my friend, and he said to her, We see you have a Bible study at your business. Are you some kind of Christian nut? How should she answer? Shouldn't she show partiality to this powerful person who's practicing the ultimate in paganism? By the way, the ultimate in paganism is human sacrifice. So some would say that's what she needs to do. She needs to bow before this queen mother because that's the only way she's going to get her money. What would you do? What would you do? I was recently moved by a phenomenal cycle-breaking story. It's about this woman, uh, Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. I want, to, I want to read to you just part of her story. This is an amazing story. Um, Sarah says this. I grew up in Australia in a loving secular home and arrived at Sydney University as a critic of religion. I didn't need faith to ground my identity or my values. I knew from the age of eight that I wanted to study history at Cambridge and become a historian. My identity lay in academic achievement, and my secular humanism was based on self-evident truths. As an undergrad, I won the university medal, had a Commonwealth scholarship to undertake my Ph.D. in history at King's College. King's is known, <laughs> indeed it is, for its secular ideology, and my perception of Christianity fitted well with the views of my fellow students. Christians were anti-intellectual and self-righteous. After Cambridge, I was elected to a junior research fellowship at Oxford. There, I attended three guest lectures by world-class philosopher and atheist public intellectual Peter Singer. I remember leaving Singer's lectures with a strange intellectual vertigo, realizing that the premise of human equality is not a self-evident truth. It is profoundly historically contingent. I began to realize the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear. One afternoon, I noticed that my usual desk in the college library was in front of the theology section with an awkward but humble reluctance, I opened a book of sermons by the philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich. As I read, I was struck at how intellectually compelling, complex, and profound the gospel was. I was attracted, but I wasn't convinced. A few months later, near the end of my time at Oxford, I was invited to a dinner for the International Society for the Study of Science and Religion. I sat next to Professor Andrew Briggs, a professor of nanomaterials who happened to be a Christian. During dinner, Dr. Briggs asked me whether I believed in God. I fumbled. Perhaps I was an agnostic? He responded, do you really want to sit on that fence forever? <laughs> the question made me realize that if issues about human value and ethics mattered to me, the agnostic response was unsatisfactory. Summer of 2008, I began a new job as assistant professor at Florida State University where I continued my research. With the freedom of being an outsider to American culture, I was able to see active Christianity in people who lived their lives by the gospel, feeding the homeless every week, running community centers, housing and advocating for migrant farm laborers. One Sunday, shortly before my 28th birthday, I walked into church for the first time as someone earnestly seeking God. Before long, I found myself overwhelmed. At last, I was fully known and seen, and I realized unconditionally loved. A friend gave me C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and one night, after a couple of months of attending church, I knelt in the closet of my apartment and asked Jesus to save me and become the Lord 
of my life. Christianity was, to my surprise, radical, far more radical than the leftist ideologies with which I had previously been enamored. The love of God was unlike anything which I expected. And to live as a Christian is a call to be part of this new radical creation. I'm not passively awaiting a place in the clouds. I'm redeemed by Christ, so now I have work to do. With God's grace, I've been elected to serve in whatever way God sees fit to build for his kingdom. All God's people said, amen. Asa's inherited cycle of apostasy would have been much, much easier to follow, just as it is easier for modern achievers to sit on the popular agnostic fence. But it's not intellectually honest. Honest investigation reveals the love and the holiness of Yahweh, allowing people to break out and become free and blessed of the Lord. And those who are changed by God's grace, we become change agents ourselves. We do not bow to the default culture. You know what people who are changed by God's grace do? They naturally and winsomely serve as world changers, one family, one neighborhood, one workplace at a time. They refuse to participate in sin even when they're under attack, even, even when they're in pain, even when their ears being sewn back on. And just like Asa and Jed Smith and Dr. Stonebreaker, we, you and I, can be radical agents for good because you and I can be at rest in the Lord. Listen, listen again to the peace that Sarah feels. Before long, I found myself overwhelmed. At last, I was fully known and seen, and I realized unconditionally loved peace. The Bible declares that that's what we can all experience thanks to Jesus Asa certainly enjoyed God's peace. That's what gave him strength for those early stands to trust God and put away evil. And this is awesome. Asa builds on that peace. He makes it deeper and deeper. Turn over. You're going to love this. Turn over uh, three books to the east in your Bible. Go to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Go to 2 Chronicles 14, and let's, let's read verses 6 through 8. Let's learn about how Asa built on peace. Start at verse 6. Because the land experienced peace, Asa built fortified cities in Judah. No one made war with him in those days because the Lord gave him rest. So he said to the people of Judah, let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, doors and bars. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he gave us rest on every side. So they built and succeeded. Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing regular shields and drawing the bow. All these were brave warriors. Stop there. How do you build on peace? You prepare the people. That's the first thing you do. You don't just sit lazily by in hopes that conflict will never come again. Two things jump out to me out of this passage. First, Asa reminded the people of the importance of seeking God. You notice that? He mentions it twice. Is that that what we're doing for the people around us? Reminding them of the importance of seeking God? Let's just talk about our parenting for a minute. Parents, your work is not complete when your child trusts Jesus if your child chooses to receive Christ. Yes, If your kiddo believes in Jesus this week at camp, that is wonderful. It is incredibly significant. That kiddo is eternally secure through the blood of Christ in the hand of Jesus. But please realize that that doesn't mean the work ends. (laughs) It only begins. Each person is becoming sanctified. Each person needs to be regularly reminded, like Asa does, to seek God. So many good families I know stop their family devotion times once all the kids are school-aged. Why? Why why do we do that? There are a lot of reasons, but I think none is bigger than the fact that parents, just to be honest, parents get a little bit lazy when they think the essential character-building years are over. That is tragic. Some of the greatest letters I ever received were from my father when I was in my 20s working at Pine Cove. My dad would watch me from afar. 
He would listen to me on the phone. He would read my letters. He would see flaws and problems. He would pray for me, and then he would write me. And not all of these were really uplifting, encouraging letters. Some were, but many of them were very swift kicks in the fanny about things that needed to be fixed. It was powerful how my dad prepared me for ongoing adulthood. He never quit. He still hasn't quit. Asa prepared people by seeking God. He also prepared people for battle. Do you see that? He had armies, even though they were at peace. Do you do that? Because your Christian friends are in a battle. Not the physical kind, but the more critical spiritual war. Paul describes it very graphically. uh, Ephesians chapter 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Are you... Are you building on your spiritual peace by preparing yourself and and preparing others for spiritual battle? Let me put it this way. Do the people in your circle know that you care for their souls? Do you encourage them to put on the armor of God? Are, are Are you making the people around you stronger for the war? Last week, I received a great note from a pastor friend. This pastor friend of mine served as a non-commissioned officer, an NCO, years ago in the Army. And he's going through a really hard situation right now, a tough particular thing he's having to battle through. So he wrote me this note after we'd been dialoguing a little bit. This pastor wrote me, and he said, Wayne, I appreciate your undergirding in this situation. Now, look at this. He said, it reminds me of the old NCO days, non-commissioned officer days, relationships where we supported one another through muck and mire. Thanks again. Do you see what that's saying? In at least this one instance, God allowed me to imitate Asa. You see, what I did for my friend was I I supported and supplied him for battle. Let's all do that all the time. Let's be like Asa and build on peace. We do so by preparing people, preparing them to seek the Lord and to get ready for battle. Now, read the next section. 2 Chronicles 14, 9 through 15. 9 through 15. Then Zerah the Cushite came against them with an army of one million men, the, the Hebrew actually says with a thousand thousands. It's kind of just supposed to be a big round number most of the time in other places where we see it. It could mean a literal million. It could just mean more people than you could ever count. Anyway, it's a very large army. Uh, it came with a thousand thousands with a million men. <clears throat> i got to find my spot. Zero. Okay. And 300 chariots. They came as far as Marisha. So Asa marched out against him and lined up in battle formation in the valley of Zephata at Marisha. Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God, Lord... There is none beside you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you. And in your name we have come against this large army. Yahweh, you're our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. So the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah, and the Cushites fled. Then Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. The Cushites fell until they had no survivors, for they were crushed before Yahweh and his army. So the people of Judah carried off a great supply of loot. Then they attacked all the cities around Gerar. Cities there is a Hebrew word that actually means little towns or settlements, because the terror of the Lord was on them. They also plundered all the cities since there was a great deal of plunder in them. They also attacked the tents of the herdsmen, captured many sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. What a great victory. How do you build on peace? You pray through the pressure. That's the next thing Asa does. Look look at the map. Here's what seems to have happened here. A large Bedouin force, okay, a Bedouin force uh, comprised of many different people from across southern Israel and and north Africa, they formed a very rare alliance. I, I don't, some of you know that Cush is used later in history for the area we now call Ethiopia, what used to be called Abyssinia. And that's true, but not at this point. At this point in human history, Cush was a much wider term. It it applied to all of the Middle East or the southern part of the Middle East and North Africa. 
um, this amalgamated force was led by somebody named Zira. Now, how many chariots did they have? How many did it say? How many? 300. Okay, they had a million men, only 300 chariots. That tells you something right there. This was not a national army. It could, no national army at that time would try to go to a battle like this with only 300 chariots if you had a million men. This is obviously a thrown-together force, okay? They almost certainly traveled up the way of the sea highway and then cut across through the hill country and made it up just northwest of Hebron, almost to Jerusalem, to Tel Marisha. By the way, that tells you something else too. It tells you how weak Judah had become under Asa's predecessors, that there was, no real, there was no real defense all the way up nearly to Jerusalem. Of course, it's rather hard to have any kind of defense against a million soldiers. This is one of the largest armies in recorded history, and it is right at Asa's doorstep. What's Asa's response? Okay, he moves his army to this spot where you guys have been. You've been there to tell Moresha right here up on this hill. And, and while his army is down in this valley that kind of goes off the, the map, Zephathah, he is up here and he prays. That's, that's right. That's what he does. This cycle-breaking, type-A, hard-working person stops and he does the most important thing anybody can do, what is actually, for many of us, the most difficult thing to do in a crisis. He prays. Three significant aspects of this prayer. Look at these. First, the king accurately describes his situation. He understands people are weak. This is remarkably wise. Despite all their preparation, Asa knows that on our own, humans are amazingly weak. Even the mighty cannot win on our own power. This is a principle that explodes into a major New Testament doctrine. We fail if we fight in our own strength. We must fight by the empowerment of God's Spirit. All God's people said, amen. Secondly, Asa states his commitment. Look, we trust in thee. There is no one to help but you. Asa does not trust in horses and chariots. He doesn't even trust in his own wise preparation he's done. He trusts in Yahweh. Third aspect, Asa calls on God's reputation. This is all about your name, Lord. For the glory of God, may you prevail over our enemies. So what about you? When you find out that your spouse has a degenerative disease, when you learn that your unwed daughter is pregnant, that you're out of work, that your home has been burglarized, that some horrible miscarriage of justice has occurred, what is your response? The wise person prays through the pressure. That's how you build on peace. Look, see the situation rightly. Remind yourself of the truth. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. State your commitment. We trust you, Lord, and call on God's reputation. For your name's sake, may you save us. Remember Cindy's great word earlier? Remember it? We must turn to the one who made everything. He who created the world and everything in it. He who set it all in motion and continues to superintend all things so they develop according to his plan. He is the only one that can help. Anything less is just piling more weight on the heap we're trying to dig out from under. We are blessed with a number of wonderful people here who have really grown in Christ. And I want to testify on their behalf that many of us have experienced how praying through pressure builds on peace. Listen, even when our army loses, we know the victory of prayer. We know that it builds on God's peace, and we want to encourage you to try it. Please try Make it your natural response to turn to the Lord. If you will, I'll make you a promise. You will discover what Asa did. You will find that you can build on God's peace even through the pressure. Amen? Asa's final lesson for us today is in chapter 15. We're going to just read some selected verses. Start at verse 1, chapter 15. 
The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. So he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Asa, all Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. For many years, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, without instruction. But when they turned to the Lord God of Israel in their distress and sought him, he was found by them. One of the most beautiful sentences in the Old Testament. Verse 5. In those times, there was no peace for those who went about their daily activities because residents of the land had many conflicts. Uh, We've already read about some of those. Go to verse 7. But as for you, be strong. Don't be discouraged, for your work has a reward. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. And we've already read about what he did, so go down to verse 10. They gathered in Jerusalem on the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 cattle and 7,000 sheep from all the plunder they had brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their ancestors with all their mind and all their heart. Go down to verse 15. Oops, sorry, I went too far. Verse 15, there you go, you guys got it? Thank you. Verse 15 says, All Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn it with all their mind. They had sought him with all their heart, and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. This is a beautiful picture of embracing God's word. Look, now it all begins verse 2. Go to verse 2. The basic statement of God's truth revealed by the chronicler, you are either seeking God, in which case he draws near to you, or you are forsaking the Lord. There's no in-between. There's no fence. Asa chooses well. He embraces the word of God coming through his prophet, and as a result, God draws near to Asa. The New Testament states the concept this way. Read with me. James chapter 4, verse 8. Everybody together. James 4, 8. Draw near to God. Wait, all together is a fascinating concept. It means that when I start speaking, everyone speaks at the same time. It's fascinating. Okay, so today, that's today. Let's try this. Um, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, the results of forsaking God are made abundantly clear in verses 3 through 7. I mean, look at it. No one has rest. No one's at peace. Continual conflict rips the people. Does that sound familiar? Sure, it does. That is our world right now. Very few people I meet are really living in peace. Very few people are enjoying spiritual rest. Very few people handle conflict without being ripped apart. And those few are usually the ones who are seeking God in His Word. Recently, I was discussing all this with another family who also is struggling, as we are, under the pain of a child's mental illness. And I want you to look at this very wise note this dad wrote me. He wrote me and said this, Wayne, I was agonizing with God because from a human perspective, I don't see how this can be fixed. Unless God works a miracle, it won't happen, even with all the help that wife and I and others can provide. For me, he said, this is like Asa confronting the million-man army. It's clear that God is our only hope for lasting change through his supernatural power working through and in us and others. Amen. Friends, we don't have peace because we have ignored the application of the word of God. Simple. We have not embraced scripture and it has cost us. It has cost us dearly. We need to hear again the truth of verse 4. When they turned to the Lord God of Israel in their distress and sought him, he was found by them. When people realize and seek God, he brings them into relationship. And we must recollect what we're taught so many times in the Bible, what Ezariah summarizes in verse 7. There is a reward for your work building on God's peace. There is a reward when you embrace God's word. Because Asa and Judah embraced God's word, they increased in peace. May that be true in my life and, and in yours, all of yours. 
May we find a deeply building peace in our souls, a, a, a Sabbath rest from God because we seek him earnestly. In fact, there's no time to start like right now. Let's do this. Uh, if you're physically able and if you want to, why don't you turn around and kneel right now? I'm going to kneel up here at my spot. You kneel at yours. And let me lead us in prayer. Let, let's seek the Lord God. Kneel right now before the Lord and let's seek him together. Lord, we know that Asa trusted you. He trusted the unseen God rather than the images of paganism and pornography. Please help us do the same. Father, there are almost certainly people studying with me today who have never trusted you. Would you please draw them as I lead them in the steps of Asa? Friend, listen, while everyone else is praying, if you are not a believer in Christ, let me talk just with you. I want to share some bad news with you, truth that you need to hear. Asa did not put away the bad things by his own power, and you can't either. You and I are by, are by nature, experience, and biblical decree sinners who are separated from God. We are not free. We cannot do real good from good motives. We're incapable. We're helpless. We cannot do good alone. We cannot save ourselves. But I also have good news to share with you. Just as God blessed the willing Asa who sought him, God blesses us with a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth as the prophets promised. Very God, very man. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead just to take the penalty of your sin and lead you in an ultimate victory over everything, even death. You must simply trust and receive Jesus. He is the eternal Savior who offers you everlasting life. You need to trust Him right now. Just talk to God and tell Him that you are indeed shackled with sin because you are. You might as well begin your relationship with God by being honest. Now turn from that sin and turn to Jesus who offers you life. He offers you a, a break in the cycle. He offers you freedom eternally. If you will trust him, put your life in his hands. Oh, friend, listen, if you just trusted Jesus, the Bible declares that you have eternal peace with God. May God bless you as you walk in it. And Lord, please guide every Christian here, everyone who is a believer in Jesus, that we build on peace, that we build on the peace you've given us by spiritual preparation, by prayer, and by embracing your words. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.